0: Unleash your self-expression with the enchanting coconut fragrance of Clorox Cintiva. You can get yours at a nearby retail store, also available in grapefruit or lavender scents. <sighs> ah, summer. The best time of the year usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there was another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. At IKEA, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, they have all of the essentials that you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. All right, what if there was someone who wanted to help you find a job?
1: Laugh a lot, EK, be kind, choose joy. Laugh a lot, casseroles, things, little food for your soul, things. Life ain't always pretty, but hey, it's pretty beautiful, things. Laugh a little more, things. Tight, tighten up your core, things. Said EK, you're kicking it with four things. With Amy Brown.
0: Happy Thursday, everybody! If you hear birds chirping. That's because I'm recording this outside on Zoom with Chase. I'm in Colorado trying to relax a little bit. Chase is in Kansas, and I brought him on simply for the intro because he is who introduced me to today's guest, Cassie Hammett, who's the founder of the Hub Ministry, which you know chase you know more about her work than i do although i've learned a lot and i am super impressed with her and admire her so much for everything she's involved in so the hub ministry does lots of things and then there's this a ministry that lives within that that's called purchased and she works with women well and men you'll hear in the episode how she works with both sides of what's going on in the sex trafficking world, human trafficking, and just—I mean, Chase, how did you even meet Cassie?
1: So actually, I know her husband really well, uh, and worked with Brent at Numana, an organization that I had worked with previously. And it's
0: a—it's a hunger relief organization.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, anyways, just quickly, was fascinated with. Cassie and the work she was doing. And like when you hear people talk about people that are like really out there changing the world, like, to me, Cassie is one of those people uh, who just confronts really tough things head on. And you're going to hear about that today. And I think she also is so good at educating people like me. Um, And I I think she will you and the listeners today in doing it in a way where you feel comfortable and safe, navigating those uncomfortable conversations and so anyways yeah she's awesome
0: well and i would just say um super sensitive if you have kids that normally listen to my podcast i just want you to be aware of that like little ears probably may not need to take in what we're talking about so listen to this on your own time and especially if it's something you wanted to know more about make sure you just have time to actually take in some of the things that she's saying. And then I would encourage you to go to the slash purchased after you listen to check out her ministry. And we do talk about four topics in this realm, but I don't, I won't have my usual four things, theme music separating each thing. Cause it didn't really, to me, feel appropriate to break it up and be like, okay, second thing. So, uh, you'll notice that that is missing, but the four things that we're going to touch on are, or that we do touch on is, you know, I recently watched the Epstein story. Oh, well, I listened to the podcast and watched the documentary on Netflix and it sparked a desire to learn more for sure. So it's, that's more of an educational conversation that we have. And then the second thing we get into is sex trafficking during a pandemic and what's been happening on happening with that. And then the third thing is how, how can we help? Like, what can we be doing in our local communities or where can we donate? Where can we support? And then the fourth thing we get into is uh, just quickly, if you have the desire again, to learn more You can check out her website, but Cassie does give some some resources for you to check out if you want to further educate yourself. So I hope y'all enjoy uh, today's podcast. That feels like a weird word to use, but I say that in a sense that you feel like you walk away knowing more. Um, If you've been through anything like this Uh, my heart is with you. I also want to be sensitive to the fact that this could be a trigger for somebody that has experienced any sort of um, sexual abuse. Uh, And so I want to be aware, or I want you to know I'm aware of that. So I'm also saying maybe this isn't an episode that you listen to depending on where you are right now. Um, But, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I feel weird saying enjoy Chase, but I, I want people to feel um, in, inspired by Cassie's work. And then if they feel led to do more, that they can do it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is enjoy, that was such the wrong word to say.
1: But it's, you know, knowledge is power. And we just want people to enjoy getting educated, you know, like yeah. I think we have. And, and so I think they're going to get that today for sure.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well then, now that you know what's to come, uh, here is my interview with Cassie Hammett, founder of The Hub Ministry. So Cassie's on, and before I hit record, we were having a little conversation, and I want to share with y'all something she said to me and that she says to others. And it was, I want to give you permission to not know. And that it's okay to not know. And I told her I have wanted to do this podcast for a while now, but it just it, it hasn't worked out for various reasons. And so I'm so excited it's finally happening. But also, too, I think some of it is I know that once I know all of this information, I'm going to have to figure out how what, what my role in this is because it's crazy to me that human trafficking and I feel like a lot of our listeners will feel this way is that it happens right here in the United States.
2: Right? Yeah. It's usually a mind blowing piece of information for people to learn that. Yeah, for sure.
0: So then if we not live in a state of denial, because once you know that I don't know how we could deny it, but I have known it for quite some time, but I still haven't dug in. And I think it's, It's a scary thing to know, and and then it's like, well, it can be overwhelming of where to start, and I don't even know what to do, so I'm excited for your expertise. And I recently listened to the Epstein podcast and watched the Netflix documentary, which I recommend the podcast over watching documentary, but I guess it just depends what you're into in case anybody wants to see how a legit example of it happening right here in America and literally flying under the radar, including DA offices, FBI, like you name it, police, like all these reports were made for 20 years or so and it was going on here. And I mean, that's an example of a billionaire doing it. I know that that's like the big case. Even though I've heard it from people, my mind is just still blown that he would find these young girls right here in America, like in Florida, and then he would groom them and then he would fly them all over the world and they would have to have sex with his friends and him. Right. And they were teenagers. So I watched it as well. I watched
2: the Epstein um, Netflix special. It is very hard to watch, just kind of a warning. I think it's important for us to really wrap our mind around human trafficking In the United States, even if we don't feel like we really want to do anything major to be a part of it, it's still important to understand what it looks like here because our perception of human trafficking is typically like the movie Taken, which is like a great movie, but it doesn't really actually reflect Uh, the reality of the U.S. And so what can happen is if we have the wrong kind of picture or definition of what human trafficking is or isn't, then if it is happening in our life or right in front of us or in our community, we'll miss it. Because we have a definition that doesn't fit the reality. So I think it's really important for people to understand that just learning what it looks like in the U.S. is a big step towards more victims being identified. Because if we're just looking for being snatch and grab off the street, being kidnapped and sold on the black market, which that is happening globally, but that's not the usually the reality here in the United States. And so what happens is we're looking for a version of it that isn't happening. And we're missing it when it is happening in front of us. And I actually think the Epstein special, why I think it's important, one, a lot of people watched it, but I think it's important because even though it is kind of an extreme example, meaning that, you know, it's a billionaire and and involved all of these kind of celebrities and all these things, that documentary actually paints a really clear picture of some of the things I'm going to talk about today. So it's actually really good because it showed a really accurate portrayal of, like you said, the process, the grooming, the recruitment, the type of teenager that was targeted and things like that. So I think um, as hard as it is to watch, I think it's important. Yes, one, it is happening in the United States to American citizens. I think that's a big misconception. But again, how it's happening. Because I always say like the law Uh, the definition isn't enough, right? It's not enough for us to just know, well, legally, this is what human trafficking means. It's really important for us to know the how, the why, and the who, right? Like who's being targeted and recruited? How are they being recruited? And why? Why are some populations susceptible to being recruited and things like that? So that documentary actually paints a really clear picture of what it looks like here in the United States. Like are there non-wealthy traffickers? (laughs) It's mainly not the Epstein. (laughs) It is happening at every level of culture in every city. And actually just uh, refresh my mind on stats, but every state, has reports of human trafficking, every city deals with it. It's happening at government levels, all the way down to just regular citizens. I mean, it is happening among those that fall in the category of what that documentary portrayal. So I don't want to say it isn't happening, because it is happening. It really does exist at every level of society. But the abstinence case uh, is extreme in the sense of who it involved in all of those things. But yeah, the who, the how, and the why are the most important parts of the equation because you can lay that over into every level of society. Um, The who, the how, and the why is really the most important part of the conversation.
0: And so is the who, the how, and the why pertaining to the victims? The victims, yeah.
2: So we always say starting with the who is most important because it keeps you Reminded of the the victim, it keeps you victim centered, right? Um, a lot of times, what can happen in human trafficking or any kind of justice work is we um, get really focused on stats and figures and systems and all of those things, and and we can lose focus that these are people and whole lives, you know, individuals with history and hurts and pains and joys and all of those things. So we always start with the who and. Another reason we start with the who is because human trafficking also is this thing that a lot of times people will hear it could be anyone, right? Like we hear it could be your daughter or it could be it could be anyone. Human trafficking doesn't really discriminate against populations and things like that. And while I understand that, and I think to some degree that is true, it's mostly a very clear segmented list of risk factors that make someone vulnerable. And why that's important is because if we hear it could be anyone, our natural tendency is to turn inward, right? And to go, well, then I need to protect my kids and I need to, you know, protect the kids in my life. And, and we get, and we do need to do that. Obviously I'm a mom, right? So like our instinct would be "Well, if every kid is susceptible or if every person, we can't watch out for every person. we turn into those closest to us and what happens is the ones that it's most likely going to happen to don't have people guarding them. We teach that it's really important to know who's the most vulnerable because then you can turn your kind of antenna on for those risk factors and those kids or those women or those men and because in society they're going to be the ones without someone watching and without someone guarding their lives and so we try to teach who is at highest risk in the United States because it's really important for us to know who they are and what risk factors kind of make them more vulnerable to being recruited and groomed and so we start with the who and what makes people um, most at risk Typically in the United States, one of the biggest risk factors we see is poverty. While poverty isn't in 100% of cases, it's usually in the driver's seat or somewhere in the car when it <laughs> comes to the story of trafficking in someone's life. And the reason for that is that poverty puts you in survival mode. We all kind of understand that. Like when you're pushed into survival mode, um, you do things differently differently than when you're not in survival mode. And a lot of us haven't ever been in survival mode. When you're not in survival mode, you make what do I want to do choices? Where do I want to eat? What do I want to wear? Where do I want to work? Do I want to get married? Do I not? want? It's all kind of these want to's. But in survival mode, it's have to. What do I have to do to find somewhere to sleep tonight or to feed my kids? Um, What do I have to do to protect myself And have to and want to decisions are very different. And when you're put into the have to side of life, especially for an extended amount of time, your decisions reflect survival. And so what happens sometimes is people blame their decisions, right? Like, well, you, how could you ever X, Y, Z, or it's your fault that you did, right? X, Y, fill in the blank. But the truth is survival mode tells you a very different story and kind of puts these blinders on and you just Have to survive. And the truth is, all of us in survival mode would do things differently than we do in our day to day life. And so poverty places, especially if it's extended poverty or generational, it pushes you into the heat of survival mode. We had a girl in our program one time say survival is the worst pimp she ever had. And that was just so profound to me, because What she's saying is other pimps, right, like humans (laughs) who she had dealt with, they get tired of you, they leave you, you escape from them, they get arrested. There are potential ways out, but survival is always tapping you on the shoulder. You have to survive. And so she was just trying to communicate. That was actually the hardest thing for her to overcome was being in survival mode and making decisions in that lane. So Poverty can push someone into a vulnerable situation, whether they're adults or children. Another risk factor, specifically for kids, is kids who are runaways. A few years ago, a stat came out in the U.S. that said one in three runaways will encounter someone related to human trafficking in the first forty-eight hours of being on the streets or leaving wherever um, their guardians are. Just being in the kind of in the front lines kind of trend towards it's it's more than one in three, and it's quicker than forty-eight hours because. Of social media and the internet and things like that. When a kid runs away from home, what makes them super vulnerable? One is a child is always the most vulnerable person in every room, right? I mean, whether they're healthy and thriving or whether they're vulnerable in in poverty, our kids are by far the most vulnerable people in every room because they depend on adults for survival. So what happens when a child leaves, and usually it's they're running from something or running to something. That's really important for us to remember. When they leave the environment where an adult is taking care of them and they get out on the street, they're in the highest level of survival mode because a child cannot do certain things for themselves. Even practically, they can't get a hotel room. They're literally stranded and they're created to be dependent. And so They're subconsciously looking for someone to take care of them because that's the way they're they're created that way. Right. And we always remind people you can't blame a kid for being a kid. Right. Like the kid runs away from home. They're going to be subconsciously searching for who's going to take care of them. And they also usually don't have food, water, shelter, clothing, all those basic things. So that actually in the U.S. for kids is the highest Uh, risk factor for human trafficking. And they're typically hand in hand. A lot of the cases that we work of children, they are runaways who have either run away once and it happened or they're habitual in that behavior. And then another risk factor is the foster system. This is where we get into some tricky waters because you and I and, and listeners, we would believe that the foster care system is amazing because it is. Families go through training and open their homes to a kid that a lot of times saves their life. Right. I mean, that home saves their life and and it is an amazing thing that it exists. But what we also have to understand, it doesn't feel amazing to that child. For that child who shows up at a foster home. They've experienced from what research shows is the most significant trauma any person can experience, even higher than like combat war, is what researchers and kind of counselors call the primal womb, which is being removed from your biological parents. And man, that's, that's hard. To, I'm an adoptive mama, right? And I, I know you are too. And, and that's a hard pill to swallow, man, that like the best day of our life was the worst day of theirs right? I mean, just just that knowledge of understanding that even though their life has been saved and we can see the whole picture and see, man, foster care and adoption you know, it's God's kind of redemption of, of brokenness. The truth is for that child, it's typically the worst day of their life um, because they've been removed from everything that they know. And so what makes them susceptible is typically they already have some of the other risk factors going on, right? So poverty A lot of times they've run away from home. They've been in in chaotic environments, so their brains are wired differently. But also they've lost that that essential place of belonging. One of the hooks of recruiters and pimps is uh, offering a place where someone belongs. And so because it has a lot of the other risk factors naturally, it just creates kind of a hotbed for uh, recruitment and is one place that... Um, pimps will go to recruit children. So, which is really hard to hear, and it's really hard to wrap mind around it's why it's so important for everyone to know the truth like if you're if you're listening and you're a foster family it's really important that you know that um, that you know that if there are children in your home that come from the backgrounds that they may come from that they are susceptible to things like human trafficking it's just it's hard to hear but it's important the next one I'll kind of talk about is abuse um, specifically sexual abuse so this one isn't like a standing alone it doesn't always mean that human trafficking is going to happen obviously but when when you have a lot of these other risk factors going on and you have sexual abuse in someone's life, whether it's once or over a period of time, no matter, no matter the circumstance, sexual abuse, this is a much deeper conversation, but it, reshapes everything about who you are. It changes the way your brain, like the chemistry in your brain works. Um, It kind of jacks up your idea of attachment and bonding and trust. It changes your view of your body, of sex, of what it's used for. And so that makes someone vulnerable in the sense that to be recruited and groomed into human trafficking if sexual abuse is already going on in that child and that woman's life. Um, this is really hard to hear, but it's, it's kind of like a lot of the work has already been done of getting them ready for what human trafficking and, and the sex industry is. I had a friend, a girl in one of our programs telling her story and she said, you know, the truth is like I was already having sex with people I didn't want to have sex with. So when the offer was just to make money, it really wasn't that big of a jump for me. (laughs) And I think that's really important for us to understand. A lot of these other risk factors are going on and they're already having to have sex with people that they don't want to have sex with. And that's already going on. Then the jump from that." To maybe even working for a pimp, right? Which it's not sold to them as truth. The pimp's not like, hey, come work for me. I'm going to take all your money and abuse you. (laughs) Like, no pimps telling the truth. But if the only difference is that they make money, or they have somewhere better to live, or they have a better car to drive, that's not a hard jump to make. So sexual abuse is definitely a risk factor. And then lastly, drug abuse. If someone is already an addict, whether they're an adult or a child, the recruiter or pimp or trafficker, those you can kind of use those words interchangeably. All they have to do is provide that. And that is a very quick hook into someone's life that creates almost instant dependence. Because if I can supply your drug of choice um, for free, uh, I can guarantee that you're going to need me multiple times a day. And so it creates this almost instant dependence on a person. And so those are kind of the top risk factors. There's a lot more that exists, but those are the most common ones that we see in our work, both in Louisiana and we're kind of in some different cities over the United States. And that, that, again, not 100% of the time, high 90s (laughs) percent of the time, you're going to hear those risk factors in someone's story. We always say no one just wakes up and wants to be a prostitute. No one just wakes up and is like, I want to work for a pimp. It's just not happening. There are influencing factors that are going on long before they even recognize really what's going on. They've been influenced for a long period of time, typically by some of those
0: risk factors. Um, So that's kind of how we
2: frame the who.
0: Right. So a lot of us are guilty of doing that whole last minute shopping thing when it comes to holidays, like Mother's Day you might be in that position right now. And that makes it challenging to find a great gift for mom. But don't worry. Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. So whether the mom in your life is a fashionista or maybe even a photographer or a fanatic about yoga, Macy's Gift Finder has got so many great gift ideas to make her feel special. Now, Mother's Day is May 12th. So make sure you make note of that. Don't have much time. That's okay. Macy's has got you covered. And you can shop by price, $25 and under or $100 and under. You can shop by category, fragrances, handbags, and more. Or they've got gift lists like for the mom who has everything, gifts that are already wrapped and ready to be gifted, or gifts for grandma. Top gifts include Beats headphones, digital photo frame, Polaroid camera. That would be so awesome to receive. Or my personal favorite, man, I would love to get this as a gift, Samsung Smart TV The Frame. Go to Macy's.com slash gift finder. Again, it's pretty easy. Just head on over to Macy's.com slash gift finder for the perfect inspiration for Mother's Day. All right, so I've been saving on shopping this year by only buying new clothes when I've sold some clothes that I no longer wear. And what this has done is it's forced me to be super wise when I'm adding clothes back into my closet. essential for women, 18 plus multivitamin every morning. I take them on an empty stomach, but sometimes if I forget, I may take them in the afternoon. It's really up to you when you want to take them. There's nine key nutrients in two delayed release capsules. And what the delay release capsules does for us is it optimizes our body's absorption of these nutrients. It's gentle on the empty stomach. Like I said, I can take it first thing in the morning and I'm totally fine. And with a minty essence in every bottle, it actually makes taking your vitamins enjoyable. No more shady business. Ritual is essential for women. 18 plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash four things. Start ritual or add essential for women 18 plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash four things for 25% off. All right. What if there was someone who wanted to help you find a job? not a website but a person in your community that would help you for free well that's where express employment professionals comes into play and if you work with them that's exactly what you're going to get express employment professionals is the local jobs expert that you can trust and they never charge a fee to help you with your job search just go to expresspros.com to find an office near you or you can even download the express jobs app to get started puts you in the running for numerous opportunities in your community. Don't go in your job search alone. Visit ExpressPros.com today. Okay, so this is me curious now about the, yeah. the just the definition and the difference right. between a girl that's being trafficked and then a prostitute and right. then a pimp, and then a trafficker?
2: So the federal laws, like if you looked up the federal law on human trafficking, it divides between there's a law that's in place for adults and then there's a separate law that's in place for children. So on the adult side, human trafficking exists anytime an individual is forced into sexual exploitation. There's three words that the law uses, force, fraud, or coercion. Okay, so anytime an individual is involved in commercial sexual exploitation, sorry, we'll, we'll go through all these words. Commercial meaning something of value is exchanged, it doesn't have to be money. Sexual exploitation is the prostitution side, right? Or the sex act. So if money or anything of value is exchanged by force, fraud, or coercion, so essentially if an adult's consent is removed by force, fraud, or coercion, those are the three words that the law uses. To identify that, then that person is a victim of human trafficking. There's a lot of questions around, do they have to cross state lines, do they have it, that all of that is kind of misconceptions. If those three words can be proved that their consent was removed by force, fraud, or coercion, then the system can recognize them as a victim of human trafficking and that case can go to the level of the federal government. Now, for adults, you can imagine that's really tricky to prove. And often, you're dealing with a rap sheet. You know, you're dealing with the misconception, well, you were already a prostitute, so why are you now a victim, right? And so a lot of the work we do is to advocate for adults in the system who truly are victims of trafficking. And the truth about a lot of the women that we serve is they've kind of gone over the line of trafficking back and forth their whole lives their whole ever since they started prostitution maybe for a stint they were working independently but for a stint they worked for a pimp and a lot of times that line is so fuzzy that even they don't understand that that's what's going on but the truth is there are adults who are true victims of human trafficking and someone has to advocate in the system for them because the system can sometimes work against them so it's it's kind of tricky on the adult side but that's the definition so forced fraud or coercion consent removed. On the kid's side, the good news is the law is actually really clear. And uh, about 10 years ago, don't quote me on that, how many years ago it was, but an act was passed. It was the Victims Protection Act. Basically, what that says is any child under the age of 18 that is involved in commercial sexual exploitation, period. One time, a hundred times, whether they sell themselves, a parent, a boyfriend, or a pimp or whatever, every time they are a victim of human trafficking. So if you hear the terms like child prostitution, that's actually not an accurate definition. There are no child prostitutes. They are always victims of human trafficking. And why that's really good news is because when there is an undercover operation or an arrest made and there's a child involved, the law immediately protects them. So they cannot be criminally charged with prostitution. Um, That cannot go on their record, which is just really great news because even if a child is looking at you saying, I wanted to do this, what we understand is they cannot consent. And so regardless of their attitude towards help, regardless of them saying, I want to do this, this is the life I choose, the law still protects them, um, which is just, in, it's incredible news for kids. And so instead of getting arrested, resources show up, right? And and the ball starts rolling in their life to get them access to the things that they need um, to give them an opportunity for restoration. So that's the, the kind of divide of the law as far as adults and children. Now, depending on who you ask, what we say is every pimp is a human trafficker. We use those two words interchangeably because there's no difference between what a pimp is doing and maybe what someone would define a human trafficker is doing. I think sometimes we think of a pimp in the terms of multiple girls and all of those things. And that is true, but a pimp doesn't have to have multiple girls. Um, what, what defines a human trafficker? Is that they are selling, buying, or trading an individual in exchange for money against their consent and typically keeping the money. That's kind of where the law looks for, like, Where'd the money go? Did the victim get the money? If the victim didn't get the money and someone else did and that person was engaged in selling them or trading or involved in any way, they're going to be labeled as a human trafficker. The unfortunate truth is, even though the law protects children and even though the law states what human trafficking is or isn't, that doesn't always mean that a case actually goes to the federal level and the people all get prosecuted and things like that. I mean, I think that would be dream scenario, right, is that if it's happening, the people who are doing it, you know, justice is served. But like you saw on the Epstein thing, it's just not that cut and dry. A big part of anti-human trafficking work is making sure the systems do what the systems are designed to do when it comes to human trafficking. And that's really hard work. <laughs> so it's not super cut and dry, but that's kind of the the legal definition of it. But again, that doesn't really tell you the whole story, but that at least tells you um, what the law states about human trafficking.
0: What about the, the traffickers? I mean, I get that they, they range all walks of life. I'm curious, is there a, a how, a why, and a who for <sighs> the men and the women? It doesn't just, I want to be clear too, or the person that is heading up these. Yeah, walks. not always
2: men, for sure. I just told you the law. Um, but what we say about human trafficking is when you boil it down, um, it is the exploitation of human need. Okay. So we've all seen that Maslow's triangle. If you haven't, you can just Google it, (laughs) but the hierarchy of need is what it's called. And it's this fancy little triangle and it has all these levels and it basically paints a picture of what every human being needs. Like you and I have it in common, all the listeners, we all have a basic set of needs in common. Like we all have them. That's what makes us all the same. And when those needs aren't met, we are busy meeting those needs, okay? We eat when we're supposed to, our basic needs of survival. We have friendships. We have intimacy. You know, when you look at the triangle, our life is fulfilled because those needs are met. And when they're not, we can have them met, hopefully. In, health, in ways that are healthy for us. Human trafficking, it's not like pimps have that laminated in their, in their pocket, right? Like when they pull out the triangle and they're like, we're going to follow this Maslow's hierarchy. But the truth is, it kind of feels like that. Like when you hear the story unfolding of how a pimp recruited someone, it's like they work right up that human need scale. They start with basic needs, they move up to security and safety and belonging and self-esteem. So it's the manipulation and exploitation of human need uh, on the side of the victim. But what's true is on the other side of the conversation. Now, this is where people really start to struggle, okay? Because when you're looking at the demand side, so human trafficking, the sex industry, it's, it's a supply and demand equation. The demand side being not just pimps, but buyers, okay, or what is commonly kind of referred to as Johns. You've probably heard that before. On the demand side of the equation, some of the same things are true in the sense of the individuals that are buying sex online, who are wrapped into selling women or recruiting children, what you find is the same level of brokenness and the same level of need that's not being met Um, some of the same risk factors, you see this deep, deep brokenness. And that's hard for people to wrap their mind. I think it's hard for people to take any steps towards compassion, (laughs) towards the demand side. And actually one of the greatest challenges of my job, but also one of the greatest gifts of my job has actually been on the side of the demand. In the last few years, we've put some really deep work into offering buyers of sex And and those who are participating in the demand access to restoration, and it is one, the hardest thing I do, but two, the most beautiful picture of what's possible when anyone is offered access to restoration. And the truth is, if we don't look at the demand side and address it, the supply will always be there. We will always be in this whole like fight. I mean, you can't look at just one side. And so a lot of times what people say is, well, let's look at demand from a punitive angle, and it should be, right? Like our laws in a lot of states are very antiquated. There's not a lot of penalties for those who are buyers. Human traffickers very rarely get sentenced and things like that. So the law has a lot of, there's a lot of work to be done. But punitive is not the only thing that it requires for the demand side to shift. It it requires giving them access to restoration from their deep trauma and their deep brokenness because they're operating out of trauma. They're operating out of unhealed parts out of abuse of their own in their own lives. And so I think it is important to understand That it's a whole conversation and that we can't just draw a circle around the demand side and say, you're evil, you're a monster, you're a part of the problem, or you are the reason the problem exists, because that won't fix anything. And so we try to take a holistic approach, which, again, is kind of controversial, (laughs) because people just go, how could you ever, you know, fill in the blank? And so... You're right. It's brokenness and vulnerability and need on both sides of the equation. And on the demand side with pimps and human traffickers, a lot of times what you hear is they're living in survival mode. They were they grew up in environments that shaped them. Um, they maybe ran away from... I mean, a lot of times it mirrors what's happening on this side of, of the victim with what's happening on this side of the trafficker, which is, it's just... It shatters your heart when you realize how much brokenness is involved for this stuff to even exist. So... The demand side is not just the trafficker, it's the buyers. You know, we could go super deep into this conversation, but our highly sexualized culture, pornography, the sex industry, exotic dancing, pimping, all of those things are a part of the demand. And if we don't address it, it will
0: always be there.
2: And we will always be kind of fighting this battle.
0: What about sex trafficking during the pandemic? So because this is like brand new for all
2: of us and our heads are all kind of spinning on what's going on. And there's not a whole lot of like statistics out there yet, but I can just kind of share with you just from the trenches. Uh, what we see happening. It's really interesting, there's a lot of factors at play with the global pandemic that are impacting these populations. One is that those who were already vulnerable before the pandemic are just more vulnerable now. So it escalated vulnerability. Why is because if they maybe had a job, they maybe have lost it. There's just all these factors that the vulnerable populations in our communities are now more vulnerable. Okay. And the same if you think about it, if you start the equation with your, yourself, we're now vulnerable in ways that we weren't before, right, because of this global pandemic. So if that's true about us, then it's for sure true about people who are already vulnerable. So there's this escalation of vulnerability, which anytime that happens in someone's life or in a community, it's just a wide open door for someone to manipulate that vulnerability. The other interesting thing is just because of the domino effect of what is happening, Um, there's not as many eyes on victims right now. So if you think about it, all of the systems that typically are in place are now closed to some degree, right? Foster care workers are doing less in-home visits. So there's less eyes on kids. Law enforcement officers have been pulled to different parts of of their job or have been pulled off of cases altogether because of COVID-19. And so what's happening is there's just less eyes on, on vulnerable populations that are being recruited into human trafficking because these systems are kind of at a standstill. And like, they're still doing things, but the way we do everything has changed, at least for right now. And so what has happened is um, I know like in the communities we work in and one in particular, all of the vice, like the police officers that were in like what's called the vice squad that typically focus on human trafficking are now pulled on other things. So in that community, unless someone gets the rare opportunity for a police officer to pull someone over and find something out, right, like there's no one. Looking in that one particular community because of COVID 19. So it's kind of shifted focuses. Everyone's focused in different directions. And so that just takes eyes off of these populations. There's just not as many people that are as vigilant. Again, we're all in a state of vulnerability. And the other part of the equation is we're all at home. And most prostitution happens online. And so what we've seen um, and what there are some stats about already is the spike in porn use during COVID 19, the spike in online solicitation because people are home, they're not connected to people, which means they're not getting those basic needs of connection and, and intimacy with friends. And you know, we're isolated. And so when individuals are isolated who struggle already with trauma or sexual addiction or porn addiction, and now are everything's online and so is prostitution. You see a you see a spike in that.
0: Yes. When you say prostitutions online, like I have in my mind what that means, but just in case anybody listening doesn't know to elaborate on that. So
2: over the last 10 to 12 years, as the world has gone online, prostitution followed. And and so now, whereas, you know, 12 years ago, prostitution was kind of geographic in the sense that um, certain parts of town or certain hotels or You know, we we kind of understand, we we see the image of a woman on a street corner, right? That's kind of what we think of. And while that is happening, that's actually not how it's mostly happening. So now I'm sure everyone has kind of heard the announcement a few years ago about Backpage. Backpage Backpage.com was a website much like Craigslist, but it was primarily used for prostitution and the government actually shut it down. But there are websites that exist even with Backpage being closed. Um, there are tons of websites where either pimps or women who are working independently can go and post ads much like what you see on eBay, okay, or on Craigslist, something like that. And they their ads advertising their services. And as crazy as this sounds, uh, one time we put two computers side by side and went through the process of like booking an appointment online with a woman and ordering a pizza. And actually the process is almost exactly similar in that. You pay and, you know, 30 to 45 minutes later, your pizza shows up or the individual that you've purchased online shows up. It's it's insane how accessible it is online.
0: And I guess for those using that, for some people, they might be thinking, well, if someone personally put themselves on there and they are of sound mind and a, an adult, well, then right, they're the ones right putting themselves on. Like that might not seem as as bad as if 30 minutes later, someone knocks at your door and it's a 16 year old, but she may be there completely. That's not where she wants to be. She didn't choose to be there. She has been groomed to be there. And I guess for someone that's using a space like that, or even just in a a hotel or a certain neighborhood or street or whatever, you don't know, even if the adult that willingly put themselves in that position when you go back and think of what got them there. Mm -hmm. I'm just reminding people just to, yeah, keep the compassion and have the understanding that someone didn't just wake up one day and think. Yeah, that's
2: actually a really important thing. You know, most of what we try to do when we do conversations like you and I are having, Really, our goal is we're trying to build compassion more than we're trying to do stats and figures and numbers. And you're right. You know, one of the things we teach at our John School for men who have been arrested for solicitation is that when, when that woman shows up, you have no way of knowing what her reality actually is. And um, we participate in a lot of undercover operations, our ministry does, with the FBI. And far more than half of the time, there's a pimp in the parking lot. And there would be no way for you to know that there would be no, I mean, literally she's not going to tell you that she's not going to hold up a sign saying, help me. (laughs) You know I mean? That's, that's the role of the dice that you take when you participate um, in online prostitution. But it's also important to remember, like you said, that woman who shows up in her thirties that we want to say, well, she chose it, right? Like that's, that's on her. The truth is she might've chosen that particular decision that day. But if you know her story, What you'll find out is, one, that choice reflects a lifetime of trauma and abuse and experiences, but also it reflects a lot of choices that she didn't make. A lot of times you have adult women who were abused, sexually abused when they were a kid. They didn't make that decision. And so there's decisions made for individuals that set them on a path where their decisions reflect ones that we would easily judge and say, well, she wanted to do that, but we're not talking about choice the way that you and I have the privilege of making a choice. We're talking about choosing from, it's kind of like a pick your poison game, right? Like it's choice maybe because consent hasn't been removed, but it's choice through the filter of other choices that have been made for them in a lifetime usually of trauma that they are operating out of. And a lot of people have heard this stat, but the average age in the U.S. of entry into prostitution is actually 12 years old. And so what we teach in our classes for men who have been arrested for solicitation is, yeah, she may be 30 standing in front of you, but she may have started when she was 13 years old. We have to understand these things, right? If, if we're going to have any kind of compassion for women in prostitution, because what I find is people are really quick to have compassion for victims, but it's not so easy when it's a woman in prostitution or maybe a woman in exotic dancing, right? Like that segment of society is, it's harder for people to have compassion because they believe that that person made that choice. But we do have to understand that that choice was made on really shaky ground and not from a place of complete health, right? A found a solid foundation of their lives. A lot of times they don't have all the information about situations. I mean, they're just are not making empowered choices a lot of the times, which people will argue that, but the truth is if you walk with victims of human trafficking or if you walk with women in prostitution, you just learn that a lot of those choices that were made for them and a lot of those influencing factors cannot be pinned on them as far as blame goes. And so those choices reflect all of that. They don't just reflect them in the moment, um, which is just really, it's really good for us to build compassion in that
0: way. So besides educating ourselves and having that compassion, what can we do to help? I'm sure every community, I have listeners all over, so every local community looks a little bit different, but do you have a blanket way that you suggest people help if they want to get their foot in the
2: door? First would be, like you said, education. Just watch documentaries, read about things. And I'm going to, I have some books I can talk about in a second, but you know, it's not just for those doing the work to get educated, because the truth is our culture is a big reason why the problem exists and culture is shaped by the people in it. And so if we can learn and shift our behaviors, our meaning all of our behaviors, then that's how a culture will shift. We say to people, if you will just learn and then take what you learn into your circles of influence, right? into your workplace, into your friends and to conversations where um, maybe in the past something may come up and you not speak to it, but now you can, right? You can help um, change perceptions and change people's perspectives of um, human trafficking and things like that. That's actually a really big deal because if... A lot of us are doing that. And a lot of us are helping shape perception and build compassion that eventually will make a huge difference in how our culture as a whole views this whole conversation. So we say, learn, you can literally become a trafficking expert on Google. (laughs) I mean, like you could just go to town and learn all there is to know. There's a ton of books out there, documentaries. So that's one thing that everyone can do and learning builds your compassion, but also learning turns your antenna on. And a lot of us are in careers or lines of work that we call front lines. Okay. So some of the listeners may be ER workers or work at the front desk of a hotel um, or in some sort of um, entertainment industry or work at a school. Those are all frontliners, And what we mean by that is those are the people we depend to catch it. We're not the only ones with eyes. We couldn't be, right? I mean, there's, there's too few, of us in anti-trafficking work to actually um, catch every victim, and so we say frontliners. If frontliners can just know what to look for, who's the who, why, and how, right? Who's most at risk? Um, what it looks like um, when it's happening? Some of the risk factors and some of the symptoms. If those frontliners can just know that and make one phone call, they may a part, be a part of saving someone's life that no one else would have seen. So we say education for everyone. Find an organization that you believe in. Um, that you believe in the work that they're doing and give them money because <laughs> here's the thing you take a lot of money to do this if you don't feel like you can you know jump in and be a hands-on part there is something all of us can give from our resources so not just money but time if you feel like this is something you want to physically be a part of find an organization that has volunteer opportunities and jump in and be a hands-on
0: part of that so there's there's something all of us can do Well, quickly, since you touched on money and donating, like you mentioned, it takes a lot of money. So where (laughs) is the money being spent on?
2: At the Hub, for us specifically, and and at Purchase, so we have locations all over the United States. So this would be true for any of our centers uh, where we are. Um, We are completely privately funded. What that means is all of our funding comes from donors like you, me, families, businesses, schools, we choose, that's the choice that we make, is to lean into our community, to rally, um, and be funded that way. Um, that's a choice that we, we make because it gives everyone an invested part of what's going on, and it also reminds people that it takes our whole community to accomplish this, right? So we are all privately funded, and the money goes to a wide array of things, mainly directly into our programs. So I would say it's mainly spent through the program lane or outreach. In some of our locations, we have residential recovery homes for adults where they live with us for nine to 12 months, and we cover their entire financial burden to be able to do that. Or whether that's in our programs for children who are coming every day to our space, engaging in online education, um, trauma-informed classes. They have teachers and volunteers, and we get them access to medical care and counseling and all of the things that are missing from their lives. So a lot of funding goes into that lane. And then funding goes into the demand side of what we do. So our classes for individuals that were arrested for solicitation. We also have some other things that we're doing online to disrupt the buying of prostitution. On the outreach side, every time we go on an outreach in a community, we take stuff with us, right? We take Um, Supplies and food, and whatever that population we're serving needs most. And so we spend some of the funding um, just supplying those outreaches. And what's really cool about what we see in our ministry is that we're able to keep our budget pretty lean because, like I said earlier, we lean into the community to come into the equation with us and provide the outreach bags. Another example is we just got a new residential home in Louisiana. And instead of buying everything for the inside, instead, we turned outward and said, hey, who wants to sponsor a room or who wants to provide furniture? Every ask is an open door for someone to engage. And and what we know to be true is if a woman comes and donates a couch to our new residential program and comes and drops it off, her life is going to be forever changed because she's going to interact with what's going on. And now we've invited her. It was as simple as her bringing a couch. Um, while we do have funding that goes into those things, our knee jerk is we first ask for it from somewhere else. And that's that's not like in a needy way. We just know what is possible in someone's life if they get to, to fill a need, even as something as simple as um, non-perishable food, right? Or makeup
0: for someone or a couch. The ministry.org slash purchased is where people can go to support this particular side. The Hub, y'all are involved in so many different things. Uh, Mm -hmm. So you're definitely making an impact, not just in sex trafficking, but since that's obviously what we're talking about Mm -hmm. right now. What are some books or podcast suggestions or any of that that you have for us?
2: You already mentioned the Jeffrey Epstein documentary. Again, hard to watch, but very, very important. There's two other documentaries that we typically point people to and you can find these they play them on different venues online but you can google the name of them Um, one of them is called very young girls and it's a documentary about the child trafficking side and so you get to follow some victims and really learn close up what that lifestyle is like and then the other one is called nefarious merchant of souls which sounds so terrifying Um, but it is a great documentary it takes a look at trafficking from a global perspective but also domestically here in the United States. And it just tells the whole story. It's it's a very good use of your time as far as learning. So those would be the documentaries that I would suggest. I have four books that I want to kind of point people in the direction of. One is called Renting Lacey. It's written um, by a woman who actually started Shared Hope International, which is a really huge nonprofit in the human trafficking world. And it's about her life um, and her history. There's one called The White Umbrella which is more for people wanting to truly kind of dig into the work of working with victims. There's one called In Our Backyard by Nita Bells. And then there's one called Girls Like Us by Rachel Lloyd, and I love that book. Girls Like Us is an incredible book. And then I would say one of the best places to just find basic information, stats, and figures, and just learn is the Polaris Project. They host the National Trafficking Hotline, but their website is phenomenal, and it just has countless resources for learning about, just in a broader sense, human trafficking um, and how it's impacting a bunch of different populations. So that would be, I don't have any podcasts really, but those would be the, the resources
0: that I would point people to. Well, Cassie, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and I hope that you'll come back on. Yes, I am love to. It's so much to take in and- We've only just scratched the surface here. So uh, I hope that you'll come back on and join us from time to time to make sure that we keep this in the forefront of people's minds. Yes, I would love to. That would be awesome. I hope people check out your ministry. It's so amazing. Thehubministry.org slash purchased. I mean, really, when I said a minute ago that y'all are involved in so much, you really, really are. This is just one side of what you do. So I'd encourage people to also just check out thehubministry.org because you can see even under the donate I, I loved how y'all had everything divided up and it was done in such a thoughtful and cute way where you can literally pick specifically where your money is going to go yep, that's right yep even toilet
2: paper <laughs>
0: yes <laughs> yes um, and
2: there's so no I- question what we spend our money on if you want to know you can just scroll through every picture that we
0: have and that is very true and I'll talk to you later bye bye, bye. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots. And Tacova's is your stop before attending your next concert.